0: Good morning. Good morning, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to 1st Corinthians chapter 2, 1st Corinthians chapter 2. I gather that last hymn was not very familiar, but I hope the sentiments are that all these things we desire for the Lord to do in our midst. Show us, Lord, the path of blessing when we trespass on our way. Cast, O Lord, our sins behind thee, and be with us day by day. Should we stray, O Lord, recall, work repentance when we fall, and that our pleading, Holy Spirit, strong and mighty, thou who makest all things new, make thy work within us perfect, and the evil foe subdue. Well, may God do that among us today and throughout our lives following the Lord. <clears throat> Let's read uh, verse, just verses 6 through 11 out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. However, Paul writes, however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared, For those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Let's once again pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do cry out unto you and pray, Thou Holy Spirit, Thou who makest all things new, make us new in thy grace, Lord God, make us firm in the faith, establish our goings, Lord God, keep us from sin on the right hand and on the left, help us to do what is pleasing in thy holy sight, Father, we pray that you would sanctify us more and more through the truth, Lord God. We are a small and a feeble lot here, Lord God, But you are strong and mighty. Give us feet like the conies to hide ourselves in the protection of the rock, Lord God, when evil comes. And to call out to you to know your strength and might, to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. Heavenly Father, we have prayed and requested your help. Father, we do it again. We need your aid and strength. We need your Holy Spirit. This stammering tongue needs your help to preach We need ears to hear and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. Father, do not disappoint us, but we pray that you would exceed even our thoughts, even our requests, Lord God, even our unexpressed requests, Lord God, you would exceed by your own holy presence this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to quote. Uh, John Wesley I don't endorse all John Wesley's theology <clears throat> someone once asked George Whitfield if he would see John Wesley in heaven and Whitfield responded no that he wouldn't because John Wesley would be so close to the throne of God he would never get that close that's a sentiment I hope we can hold uh, toward brethren even that we disagree with But he writes this, he says, I am more convinced than ever that the preaching like an apostle, without joining those that are awakened and training them up in the ways of God, is only begetting children for the murderer. How much preaching has there been for these 20 years all over Pembrokeshire? But no regular societies, no discipline, no order or connection. And the consequence is that nine in the ten of those who were once awakened are now faster asleep than ever before. Wesley recognized the need, right, for the means of grace. Paul himself was no passing evangelist. He didn't just gather and put up a tent and uh, make loud and bold proclamations and preach and then leave the city to itself. Paul went about preaching, and although he could say in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that the Lord Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, he knew full well the necessity of gathering Christ's disciples into well-ordered churches, that ongoing instruction and fellowship, that brotherly love and admonition, The observance of the ordinances and united prayer may be continued in perpetuity until Christ himself comes and receives a holy bride unto himself. Paul knew this full well. And this fact, this purpose is proven in his life and his character. When he went about preaching in the book of Acts, we read that he gathered those disciples together. He established churches. He appointed elders in those churches to carry on the work. He didn't just scatter the seed and leave it on the ground where it was. Where there were true believers, he gathered them together in the churches. We see this also in his writings regarding church conduct and order. And throughout this epistle, First Corinthians, he is correcting errors, asserting principles of conduct and order for the church and his judgment and counsel regarding such a variety of matters, church discipline, and a host of other issues. Paul is concerned, that which came upon him daily, the care of all the churches. Paul was no passing evangelist. Paul saw full well that those awakened might indeed fall away if they're not continually under the word of God and gathered in among the people of God. So far we have seen in this epistle, 1 Corinthians, amidst all the confusion, all the confusion that seemed to prevail there in Corinth, all the conflict and controversies, the prevailing carnality and the conundrums, Paul in these first three chapters seeks to reset the Corinthians' confidence and faith back on the one and only cornerstone, the one foundation of the one solid rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says in chapter 3, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church had gone in a number of directions. There were a lot of trouble and Paul, the first things first, he wants to get them back to that foundation, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Neither the instrumentality of preachers nor the eloquence of men should move us away from that one foundation to give unwarranted allegiance to this or that man, to say, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, or to this and that faction, I am of Cephas, who, as far as we know, never preached in that church. There is one captain of our salvation. There is one father for us who is in heaven, There is one Master, even Christ, and in Him we are all brethren. We need to have that foundation and hold that dearly and fast. But this one also, this one also, Christ our Master, is passed into the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. We cannot, like we heard the 12, when they heard the parables, they went into the house and they asked Jesus about it. We don't have those opportunities to go aside with Christ and ask him more details. What were you talking about, Jesus? We don't have that advantage. And yet Jesus told us what? It is advantageous. It is expedient that I go away. It is for our benefit that I that he goes away. We can look back and say, I wish Jesus was here. We could ask him so many things and so many questions. But he has gone to the right hand of his father. What rudder shall guide our little ship then over the sometimes blithe and the sometimes tempestuous seas of this life, this world that we have to live in? A world that we read is described as sitting in the lap of the evil one, sitting in the lap of the devil himself, the God of this age. How shall we conduct our lives over this sea? Well, Paul begins here to answer this quandary, to answer this dilemma along two distinct yet merged and intertwined lines of thought here, especially in verse 9. Those two lines of thought are the mystical and the prophetic word of God, or the mystical and the external word of God. What do we mean by that? Look with me at verse 9 again. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What do I mean by the mystical, the mystical aspect? We really don't like that word because that word has a lot of bad connotation. We hear the word mystical, we think of magic, we think of the mystics, we think of uh, perverse uh, descriptions of the true religion of Christ, When we hear that word mystical, but the word itself is a good word, if we properly understand it. One definition reads this, Having an import not apparent to the senses, nor obvious to the intelligence, beyond ordinary understanding. There's a good solid definition of mystical. And we see then in this verse, there is something beyond what we're able to grasp with our senses, with our minds even, something beyond that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. Mysticism is sometimes set in contrast to empiricism. Empiricism is the philosophy, the notion, that we can only know things through our senses, our five senses and our observation, perhaps. Science, the rise of what we call science, has given us the idea that everything has to be established through empiricism. We can only know through the things that we can sense or discover by scientific discovery. But what we're saying here and what we read here in this verse is there's something mystical beyond that that God does do and God does reveal to his own. This verse Verse 9, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Whatever else this verse is teaching us, it is teaching us this. There are things imperceptible by normal, rational, and empirical processes that God does mystically communicate to his redeemed children. And verse 10 tells us, begins to tell us how. He tells us that these things are revealed by his spirit. We jump ahead to verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. What God communicates to his children in this mystical way is a foreign entity to the natural man. He can't grasp it. Or understand and We can't come to that understanding by empiricism or even by rationalism. It's beyond those things. There's a mystical element in God's revelation to us. That this is the doctrine of the whole of Scripture, I want to demonstrate by just a few other references. Turn with me, if you will. This will be familiar to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Throughout Scripture, this is underscored, that there's a mystical element to the working of grace. In communicating the things of the Spirit of God. Follow along at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say unto you, ye must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone Who is born of the Spirit. So we notice here that the inception of new life itself is a mystical work of the Spirit of God. God somehow so changes the heart. We must be born again or born from above, more literally. We must have a rebirth, and that rebirth is spiritual in nature. It's not an empirical experience, it's not a rational discovery. It's a work of the Spirit of God, taking out that old stony heart of flesh and replacing it with a beating heart of love to Christ. Such a work is done only by the Spirit of God. Let me ask you, has God done that work in your soul? Can you attest that God has done that work in your soul? Have you been born again? Do you see the necessity of it? Can you speak truly that God has so changed my heart and my life. It's beyond rational discovery. It's beyond what I could reasonably describe. God has so changed my heart. As Wesley himself described his conversion, I felt my heart strangely warmed. There's a complete change wrought in the inner soul of our being when God does this work of grace. Without this new birth, we lack the faculties to see We lack the faculties to see the kingdom of God. That is to perceive and understand what the kingdom of God is and how it works. We can hear all about it. We can hear all about these parables that we've been hearing about. But remember what Jesus said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are without, he speaks to them in parables that seeing they may not see. And they cannot see and we cannot see and except the Lord opens our eyes through the new birth. Also, we lack the faith and feet to enter into the kingdom of God. See what he says? You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We cannot go in that direction. We cannot see what the kingdom of God is. We cannot embrace the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ our Lord, without a work of grace producing faith in our hearts and affections. So we see here that even the inception of new life in Christ is a work, a mystical work of the Spirit of God. Turn with me also while we're in the book of John over to chapter 6. Again, a familiar passage, but one worth noting. John chapter 6. We'll jump in at verse uh, 44. Well, we'll jump in at verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, He has seen the Father. Here, what do we see? That the drawing to Christ is the mystical work of God. There's a mystical element of this drawing to Christ that God does when it says here, they shall all be taught of God. This isn't the external teaching and preaching of the word of God that he's referencing here. He's talking about a work of God in the soul to teach us in the inner man and to draw us thereby unto Christ. Not that anyone has seen God at any time, except who? Christ. He has seen the Father. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. No one can come to the Father, except he be drawn, and the Father draws him unto Christ, and then Christ will keep him, and raise him up at the last day. But this drawing, this work of teaching him in the inner man is a mystical work of God in our souls that he does. And we can get into the discussion, which comes first, the drawing or the new birth? But we pass on. Thirdly, another indication that this work, this mystical work is not only part of the inception of our new life in Christ and part of our being drawn unto him, but it is also the ongoing teaching of truth. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. And then down in verse 27, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is no lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. This anointing, this anointing, no doubt, is that sealing, that anointing of the Holy Spirit the believers receive in coming to Christ, and that anointing abides with them. The Spirit of God abides with believers, teaches believers unto the very end. It's going to abide with us to the end, and it will teach us the truth of the Word of God. And he says, you don't need that any man teach you. Now, we're going to qualify that in a minute, okay? But what he is saying, you don't need anyone to form that conviction in your soul, but the Spirit of God working in you, producing in you an understanding and a conviction. The ongoing teaching of truth is the mystical work of the Holy Spirit that he does in our souls. Turn with me also just over a page to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. Not only do we have the mystical work of us being drawn to Christ and new life, new birth being imparted to us in Christ and the ongoing teaching of truth to our souls by this mystical working of the anointing. He has given us, but here the abiding presence of his spirit, assuring us that we are his and that he is perfecting his love in us. First John four, verse 12. No one has seen God At any time, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now here, the apostle doesn't say, okay, and here's the indication that he's given us his spirit. It's something known to the souls of believers because they know the Holy Spirit when he is there with them. It gives them assurance. It convicts them. It affirms them in the love of God, and they abide in that love unto the end. This is the work, the mystical work of the Spirit of God in confirming and convicting our souls and assuring our souls that we are in him and that he is in us. What a blessed assurance that God gives to his saints as he abides in them and cares for them. Now, having surveyed a glimpse of how God mysteriously and mystically draws his elect to himself, engenders new life in them so that they can see and enter the kingdom of God, how he teaches them all that they need to know by his anointing, his abiding presence assuring them that they are in him and he in them, We must see, secondly, the external testimony by the Word of God. The external testimony by the Word of God. By now you may be asking the question, but do not the Scriptures elsewhere attest that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God? Did we not just hear that the seed is the Word of God, and the casting of that seed bears fruit in some that that seed, that preaching of the word is a necessary element? Did not the Thessalonians turn from their idols to the true and living God because Paul preached the word of God to them? Was it not these very Corinthians who we read of in Acts chapter 18, verse eight, it says many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Well, how do we answer that? We answer that with a hearty yes and amen. A yes and amen. The mystical working of the Spirit of God and the audible declaration of the Word of God are not mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive methods of God's grace, His saving grace, to sinners, but are perfectly complementary. They go together always. They go together. In fact, we dare not tear asunder what God has joined together in these things. Paul, in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, talks about what? How he came and preached to them. How he he determined not to know anything among them, save Jesus Christ, and him crucified. How does he do that? Sitting by idly and watching the Holy Spirit do all that work within their souls? No, he preached, declared the whole counsel of God, the word of God to them, so that the Spirit of God working with that Uh, work that in their hearts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16 as an illustration. Another familiar account, Acts chapter 16, of how these things blend together, go hand in hand, fist in glove. Always is God working in this way. Acts chapter 16, verse 12. Well, backing up to 11, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Note that. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. You see, the both blend together. She heard them. The Lord opened her heart. The mystical work of God in her soul to open her heart to hear, to hear with new ears, what Paul was preaching, to hear in a way she could not hear simply physically. That's the mystical work of God, but it is always in tandem, always together with uh, the preaching of the word as well. I'm always brought back to that old catechism question because it does so well to answer this point. It couples these things together so well. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? The catechism asks, the Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, its power to convert sinners and edify saints, but the spirit of God only working by and with the scriptures in our hearts is able fully to persuade us that the Bible is the word of God. There it is. There it is. The spirit of God working how? How? by and with the scriptures in our heart. Never divorce from it. Never do we see those two things working somehow opposite or apart. Look with me again back at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The context of our text, the context of verse 9. Back to verse 7. He says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul here makes a general indictment of the rulers of this age, but it has special reference to those who crucified our Lord, to Herod and Pilate, and especially the Jewish princes and leaders who were so forward and determined in their persecution of Christ. Remember how they went after him. And what did Jesus say when they brought him to trial? He said, I was daily with you in the temple. How many times do we see the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees gathered about Christ? They're listening to what he says. They're trying to catch him in his words. They're paying close attention. But there's no change in their heart because there's no mystical work of God to open their hearts like they did for Lydia. Turn with me also to Acts chapter thirteen. You see a parallel to this. Acts uh, chapter thirteen. Verse twenty six. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate, that he should be put to death. Note here, they did not know him, nor the voice of their own prophets, which are read to them every Sabbath. Their ears were shut, their eyes were blind. They were dumb to the things of God. And here Christ himself, very God, a very God clothed in flesh, dwelling amongst them, teaching them daily in the temple. They see, they witness these things and all they do is compile their hatred and seek to persecute him unto the death. Unless ye be born again, ye cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Unless there's that work of grace coupled with the word of God, we're going to be completely dead to the things of God. There was a willful blindness on their part. A willful ignorance, pride and jealousy, hypocrisy, blinded and deafened them from hearing the word of God. Or oh, they were guilty, full guilty of what they had done. They themselves had shut out the word of God from hearing and receiving it in truth. So we see these two things are bound together. The mystical working of the Spirit of God and the outward preaching and teaching and inscripturated Word of God are coupled together to bring about uh, sanctification in believers and conversion in unbelievers. Well, there's two pitfalls or errors we can fall into if we go off on one of these two things. If we unbend them, if we unbind them and try to take one to one degree or another, on the one hand, we could fall into Gnosticism. Gnosticism in this sense being simply the idea that as long as I come to an understanding of a certain body of truth, I'm in. I'm part of the initiate. I'm part of that group of God's elect, simply by knowing these things in my head and understanding them and being able even perhaps to articulate them. But Gnosticism is not the way of salvation. It is not the gospel of Christ. Christ makes it clear and plain. Knowledge puffs up. That's all it's going to do if all we have is the knowledge of these things. It's only going to puff us up to think that we are the favorite of God. There's a great danger in separating these two things. The other danger that we could fall into is enthusiasm. The enthusiast thinks all I need is the Spirit of God. They take that verse there in 1 John chapter 2.27 to say, I don't need anybody to teach me. All I have to do is wait for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God instructs me. I don't need to be brought back or corrected or instructed by the scriptures. I don't need my brethren exhorting me in this way or that. I have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God guides me. Well, often it is what? The devil himself appearing as an angel of light and misguiding you into all kinds of error. We need to keep these things bound together and not separate them in the Christian life. Two other things to keep in mind. We read when we put on the whole armor of God, what? To take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Spirit uses the sword. The Spirit uses the word of God to search our hearts to convict us, to sanctify us, to instruct us in all these ways. That sword is always in the Spirit's hand. It is never laid aside. Those always go together. When we read over there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, a dividing to the uh, asunder of soul and spirit and is a searcher of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Spirit of God takes up that sword and searches us with it. Both those things always have to be coupled together. Both those things always have to be coupled together. Well, that's something to be said about this verse 9. We're not really going to get much off verse 9 this morning. Let's read it again. But as it is written, I... "...has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him." Now, as we're here in 1 Corinthians, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he commissioned his apostles to go out and preach, we read of in the book of Acts, makes triumphs and progress, and many are brought to faith. This whole thing begins to move and flood along the work of the gospel, is going forward and it's this giant uh, movement and stream that we could see that is making great progress and when we see it here i want to back up just a moment i want us to paddle back up the stream a minute if you've ever canoed with me i'm the kind of guy who likes to go to those little backwaters and figure out where is that rivulet coming in to this greater stream i'm that kind of guy and that's kind of what i want to do here Where does this verse come from, Paul, that you're quoting and talking about here in verse 9? Well, that's going to bring us back to Isaiah chapter 64, if you would turn there. Isaiah chapter 64. The clear light of the New Testament should shine light on those Old Testament passages. And it does so here as well. Now, this passage itself, exegetically, has some difficulties, and we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at the exegetical problems. But I want us to observe several things about this whole passage that he is, uh, the reference comes to verse 4, 64 and verse 4. But the whole, going back to chapter 63, verse 15, is a prayer, is a prayer. And I want us to notice a number of things about this prayer and to give us some instruction in the way of prayer and then how that prayer is fulfilled and answered. Notice with me, first of all, this prayer is prophetic. It's a prophetic prayer. Isaiah is giving us this prayer, perhaps, into the mouths of the exiles who are in Babylon or who have recently returned. Look with me at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 64. He says, Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Okay, so he's speaking to a time well into the future when Nebuchadnezzar came with their armies and they burnt up the temple and they themselves were taken exile into Babylon. And so this prayer is a futuristic prayer that they're praying for God to come and to restore them. So notice with me, going back to chapter 63, verse 15. He begins thus, "'Look down from heaven and see your habitation.'" Holy and glorious, where your zeal, where are your zeal and your strength? The yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me, are they restrained? Notice that, notice the boldness and familiarity which with the petitioner seeks after God. He's bold to say, Where's the yearning of your heart? God, why don't you yearn after me? Where are your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Here he is, perhaps, sitting in Babylon, longing for the day that God would restore his people back to the land. And he cries out to him quite boldly, "Where, Where is your heart, O God, toward me? He prays thus boldly. Let us learn something there, brethren, about how we need to be bold in prayer. Not presumptuous. There's a fine line, isn't there? To be bold in seeking after God, knowing the things that God desires, knowing that we ask according to his will, but at the same time, being bold to ask those things. Notice verse 17. Well, verse 16, he says, Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, a redeemer from everlasting is your name. Now, this brings up a very curious question. What here are you petitioning for? What are you saying to God by this petition? And I think the answer to that is found later in chapter 65, and that is this. This isn't just an Israelite praying. These are the Gentiles too who have an interest in our Heavenly Father. Though we're, Abraham's ignorant of us, he doesn't know who we are because we're not of his genealogy. Israel does not acknowledge us. Outside are the Gentiles. They're dogs. But he says, But you are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. And I believe full well that's what he's saying. That this work of grace that is coming where eye is not here nor ear heard, okay? Eye is not seen nor ear heard is a work not only for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. And so, the Gentiles also enter into these petitions. Then verse 17, he says, O Lord, why have you made us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Now here he's even bolder in some ways. He's accusing, as it were, God of hardening our hearts, of hardening our hearts. Now, where would he get such a notion? Well, we read of such things, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if he looks back at the history of Israel, he could say, yes, we hardened ourselves against you, Lord. We did not heed your commandments. We did not worship you in spirit and in truth. We did not go in the way that you called us to go. Our hearts were indeed hardened. And he says, why? Why? Knowing full well the only one who can soften the heart and make a change of heart, is God himself. Is God himself, as we read in those mystical ways, that he can work in our hearts. Only God can do that. So this is a good and a holy petition. But we need to be careful that we never charge God with folly, that we never charge God with sin. Verse 18 and 19. Your holy people have possessed it, but... Possessed the land of Canaan, but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. We lived in the Holy Land in Israel for a short time. Then we were exiled. And the wicked came in, and they've destroyed the sanctuary, and they trampled over everything. We have become like those who never called upon your name. We're an estranged people, estranged from the land and, as it were, estranged from the covenants of old and estranged from you, the living God. That's how they sensed and felt themselves. And then he goes on, verse 64. Hear the earnestness of his request here in verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Here's what he requests of the Lord, that you would come in judgment to what? To bring us back to the land, that you would show your mighty hand, that you would show your mighty name, that you would he desires God's name to be known that he is a god of power yes a god whose presence is awesome who has shown himself mighty before he's asking god show yourself again one must think here that the petitioner doesn't fully know what he is requesting he doesn't fully know what he is asking or he doesn't certainly fully know how god is going to answer those requests turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 you'll be familiar with that passage, perhaps. First Peter chapter 1. He's asking for God to come fulfill these things, to bring them and restore them to the land, but God has a grander and a more glorious purpose in fulfilling those petitions that they are making. Notice with me uh, verse 10 of First Peter chapter 1. "...of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you." Okay, the grace that Paul is citing in verse 4 when he says, "I has not seen, nor ear heard, and all the rest." Okay, searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ." and the glory that would follow, to whom it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So as the petitioner here, this prophetic petitioner is requesting these things of God He might have a shortened view of it. He might just, in some sense, want to be restored to the land. Let us get back to how things were back in those happy days when David and Solomon ruled over the kingdom of Israel. That might be the extent of his desire and request in some ways. But in some ways, he's asking something more, and he may not know full well what he is even asking. Look with me, pressing on to verse 3 when you did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down, the mountain shook at your presence, and then verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. There's where the quotation comes from. This is referring to, to the new covenant blessings that we receive when God, by his Spirit, mystically opens the eyes, attends the preaching of the gospel in such a way that we come to believe these things, that the petitioner is praying not just for the restoration of Israel to the land, but for the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Christ the Messiah and the spiritual nature of that kingdom, here is clear because of what we read in 1 Corinthians. Then notice, this salvation comes to those who look for it in some way. There were those in Israel who waited, what? For the consolation of Israel. They anticipated this time. Verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned in these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But notice this first part of this. You meet him. You meet the one who is waiting for you, who is anticipating your grace, who's waiting for the consolation, who's waiting for Christ to come and restore all things and to bring in everlasting righteousness. There are those who are waiting for him and God is pleased to meet them. What follows next is the recognition of how wicked and sinful We are and how great our need of salvation is. That's going to come true for every true believer at some point. It may not be his first petition. He might cry out to God, I'm a mess, help me. But at some point he's going to see that he is not only a mess, he's a sinner who's violated the commandments of God and seek his salvation. Notice what he says. You are indeed angry, verse 5b, for we have sinned. In these ways, we continue. We're still continuing in our sins and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We have no strength, no hold, nothing. Okay, the wind of God's justice just blows us about and there was no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. There is no one who calls on your name. What's that remind you of there in Romans? There is none that doeth good. No man seeks after the Lord. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Brethren, oftentimes what? We have not, because we ask not. And here, that's mentioned again. No one stirs themselves up to seek after the Lord. What a pitiful state we're in. This is an indictment of us in the church. It's an indictment of the world around us, certainly, but even within the body of Christ. We need to stir ourselves up to take hold and to plead these kind of petitions, these earnest, bold petitions to seek. Well, the Lord now, in one way, some of us would say, well, this is all well and good. But whatever uh, prayer this was, be it of the exiles, be it this prophetic prayer of Isaiah himself, it has been fulfilled, has it not? Christ has come. The new covenant has come. The new life in Christ has come. And to that we say, yes, yes, amen. That's true, it has come. It has come in power and it is still at work. But the outworking of that, The outwork of our salvation both personally and collectively and for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the world continues. And so our prayers and petitions must continue and continue in this vein, in this vein. Notice what he goes on, verse 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. See the humility of his confession. We're like a clump of clay in your hands. You're the potter. We're the clay. Form and and fashion us in your likeness. Do with us as you please. Don't leave us to ourselves. Don't be furious against us. Don't smash us against the wall. He's pleading and crying out to the Lord for mercy. And the prayer concludes with a doleful recounting of their condition and a final appeal for restoration. We read that already, but I'll read verse 12. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? Is God just going to continue to hold it over their heads? And to punish them and keep them back. Or will he show mercy? The answer comes in chapter 65. The answer comes in chapter 65. But I'm not going to go there. (laughs) The answer comes in anticipation in chapter 65. But the answer really isn't fulfilled until the gospel. Until we come to the time of Christ. But you will see it there, especially in those first verses, how God answers that. Well, all that was to go back upstream, right? And to see how all that Old Testament prophecy flows together into this grand flowage of the gospel that's sweeping over the world. Sometimes we don't acknowledge and realize how many have been swept into the kingdom of God all by his mercy and grace. What a change from days of old, right? God has kept and fulfilled his word. God has listened to and heard the petitions of his people. What other lessons can we take away from this as we close? First, we must take heed to the Word of God. We must take heed to the Word of God. The Spirit of God is going to work by the Word of God. We can never separate those things and divorce them. We must perk up our ears. We must pay attention. We must search it out. We must come to an understanding of a God helping us. To understand the word both intellectually but much more. To understand it in our hearts spiritually and to grasp it by faith. That work of grace. We must be that kind of people. Secondly, we must love the Lord our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why do I say that? Because he says the things he has prepared for who? For those who love him. Those things are going to be shown to those who love him. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. Okay, That's how it works. Now you say, but how can I love the Lord unless the Lord does a work of grace? Amen. God has to do a work of grace so that we love him. And as we love him, he will show us more of his purposes. He'll show us more of his love and purpose as we do so. Thirdly, Know that it is the spirit that quickens. It is the spirit that quickens us to life. Again, if you're here today and know not the Lord, it is the spirit of God, the spirit of God alone, who can regenerate your soul so that you will love him and be one of his children and sit in humility at his feet and learn of him and no longer be a rebellious child, no longer be a a sinful son of Adam, Kicking against him at all opportunities. God must do that work by his grace. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. Fourthly and finally, we need to pray like Isaiah. Pray like Isaiah. Pray like those exiles. They were just looking to return to an earthly kingdom, ours is a heavenly kingdom. How much more earnest ought we to be in praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, show forth your power and your hand, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. How much more should we pray like that? When we've seen it in the past, haven't we? We've seen and tasted bits of it. We prayed at the beginning for revival. Revival is on the minds of a lot of people, even in the world today, because these these newfound claims to revival, What is revival like? Uh, I really, when I first started out, I intended to preach on the subject of revival. And perhaps, Lord willing, we might get to that uh, at some point. But let me just whet your appetite with one little account. In the year of our Lord, 1839, in Scotland, uh, in a little town called Kilsith. Some of you have heard of the Kilsith revival, which spread over much of Scotland. And there, uh, Robert Murray McShane was the pastor nearby in the town of Dundee at a much larger church. And he and a number of men had gone to Israel because they were looking into whether they might establish a mission to win the Jews to Christ. And while he was away, a young seminary graduate, if you will, William Chalmers Burns was fulfilling uh, McShane's pulpit. Well, in July of that year, uh, the Presbyterians often would only have communion, I think once a quarter, quarterly, and it was communion season. So he had gone up to Kilsith, where his father was pastor, and while he was there, they had some preparatory meetings. And at one of these meetings, he began to preach, and the fire of God fell, and many listened and crowded in. And so they appointed another meeting later, and some 400 people gathered at that meeting, and the fire just began to grow. Many were humbled and brought to Christ during this season of revival. But the thing I want to underscore here, by September of that year, just to finish this thought out, by September of that year, at the next communion season, some 14,000 gathered. Some 14,000 gathered in the little town of Kilsith. And when McShane finally made his way back from the Holy Land, he found that in his church in Dundee, there were some 39 prayer meetings going on in his parish, all over the parish. Such a work of God had begun. But here I just want to underscore this. That little town of Kilseth had determined seven years before to begin praying in earnest for revival and for God's spirit to move among them. And so they had been praying, waiting on God for seven years, not manufacturing a revival as is sometimes done, but simply calling out and praying faithfully, earnestly. And God was pleased to hear their prayers and usher many into the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, or our own devices, to our own feeble brains to discern the meaning of scripture. Lord God, you've given us your spirit and your spirit abides and your spirit teaches and instructs and guides and enlightens and enlivens. Father, we pray that you would quicken and enliven unto new life in Christ. Any who don't know you here and so many of our friends and relatives, Lord God, may we be in earnest in praying and seeking your work in this way and father may we be in earnest seeking your help day by day to understand your word and to live out uh, the principles of the christian life to live out and work out our salvation with fear and trembling not only for us lord god how we pray send the fire send your spirit lord god not just to stir up emotions but, Father, to convert sinners and to edify saints and to sanctify your people unto eternal life so that, as we read of in those days, talk of politics disappear altogether. When you met people on the streets, uh, the talk of the town was the work of God amongst them. Oh, Father, may we know such a blessed day when these are the things that would move our hearts and occupy our conversations. Father, we are your own, Lord God. We are those who are like the leaves, withered and blown about. But Lord God, you can establish us by your grace. We pray that you do so more and more unto eternal life. In Jesus' name.